This Expert Insights podcast was recorded in front of a live audience on the 31st of August, 2016. The discussion topic is working with trauma. Our panel members are clinical psychologist and chair of trauma and mental health at St. John of God Hospital, Professor Zachary Steele. Senior clinician and social worker at St. John of God Hospital, Dominic Hilbrink. Senior lecturer and researcher at the University of New South Wales School of Psychiatry, Dr. Susan Rees. And our lived experience representative, Elle Glassick, is here to share her personal insights on trauma. Our chairperson for this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. So to start with, Zach, I might check with you. Um, we're using the word trauma a lot tonight. I thought it might be useful for us to actually talk about what we understand by that word, what, how we define trauma in the context in which we're speaking. Yeah. So the notion of trauma has shifted and um, a lot over time um, in terms of our, understand, our understanding of it. For a long time... Um, often now in research we talk about things as being potentially traumatic events because whether something is traumatic or not depends on the, ind- the meeting of the individual and the trauma to a certain extent. You know, once trauma reaches a certain threshold, it's, it, you know, it, it cascades for most people into trauma. But some things will be traumatic for some people and, and not others and often the meaning context of trauma is is all important. DSM for a long time talked about helplessness, fear and horror as being an essential element of trauma. That was dropped in DSM-5 because it just seemed to lack pathospecificity. It didn't um, identify all people. For many first responders and um, emergency service workers uh, and veterans, it's often the accumulation of things and, um, uh, and, and perhaps even the personal relevance of something. They may have witnessed far more devastating scenes, but the traumatic scene can be something that strikes a particular note or a particular cause and then seems to unlock lock a cascade of previous experiences. So there's no easy answer to that um, of exactly what is trauma and yet there's a very clear relationship between the dose of a a set of events, which we would call potentially traumatic events, and risk to PTSD, and that overrides most individual factors. We now know two things about trauma. One, it's highly gendered, and it clusters in people. So it's not randomly distributed in the population, So this is looking at classes of trauma at adulthood across the whole of the Australian population. And we've looked at this in the Australian population. We've looked at it in um, uh, people presenting to hospital for traumatic injuries. We've looked at it in natural disaster survivors. And, And basically within the Australian community, the same categories emerge Now, these are the different types of trauma. You can see combat, accident, disaster, see injury and death, rape, molested, attacked, threatened, domestic abuse. And and the first class um, is very high exposure to all of these. So trauma clusters and places people at great risk. Now, what you don't sort of see there is that is often a... um, 
that they're very gendered. So there tends to be a very different profile for female and, and trauma and males and trauma, with females and trauma from age 12 onwards involving high levels of sexual violence, and um, men involving high levels of accidental injury, assault and witnessing trauma. And those patterns cascade across time. And yet 70% of the Australian community experience very little trauma. But there are some groups by the age of 12 where a very complex trauma pattern of trauma exposure is already evident. And so, um, Susan, I might ask you, um, what do you see as the relationship between experiencing trauma and then um, having mental health concerns? Just before I answer that, I will just respond to the, gen the gendered form of forms of trauma because I think it's important to say that it does seem that, I mean, we know that women have higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder in, at a population level, higher rates of depression and anxiety disorders. But if we look at the rates of exposure to intimate partner violence and at a population level and their associations with common mental disorders, it's pretty striking and pretty concerning. And for example, the paper that we published of sample of Australian women, um, over 4,000 women, um, showed very strong association between exposure to um, gender-based violence and, co and co the common mental disorders. Meaning if you've had no exposure to a gender-based violence, if you've been that fortunate, the rate of um, a common mental disorder in your lifetime is about 23%, uh, something like that, 26%. If you've had exposure to one form of a gender-based violence, that's a sexual assault, a physical intimate partner violence, um, a rape or stalking, that shoots up to 58%. And when you've been exposed to three or more, three to four um, types of gender-based violence, that goes up to 89%. So it's a very strong, compelling association. Um, if, you know, if we were to really confront the public health crisis, which is violence against women, and I'm not saying that there's not a thing called violence against men, there is, that men experience it, particularly the biggest risk factor, which Zach pointed to, in terms of exposure to early childhood forms of violence is sexual assault and that affects boys and girls um, at, in the very early ages. But once girls reach, um, I think it's 12 and then 16 and onwards, it shoots up much higher exposure to forms of gender-based violence. If, um, if you're in, a intimate, in, in a violent relationship in a, in a relationship that you expect would be safe and secure and you're in a relationship that you are not able to move away from, a bit like being held captive, then um, you're not able to share your experience of the trauma, which is very important to be able to make a, some step toward recovery. You should be able to share that experience with someone. Women often internalise their experience of trauma <laughs> Um, related to men's violence, in, um, self-blame um, and all those kinds of, <laughs> kinds of um, things that you see in, um, in relationships uh, where, particularly where uh, this is, there's not a 
a societal condemnation of men's violence to the extent that there should be. So you're operating in a context where um, there's a kind of a sanctioning of violence. It's very difficult to kind of feel that, and that's why an empowerment for you, you people who are, who are assisting women who've experienced violence and empowerment, kind of feminist-oriented model seems to be the most effective when you look at the research. And that's because when women start to see that it's not their fault and that there may be opportunities to, uh, you know, ex escape from that situation without uh, it incurring too much effort in their own things that prevent women from doing that, both practical and emotional. From my experience, I think a lot of it has to do with the context in which it happens. So, um, you know, we tend to focus a lot on things like, um, you know, sexual abuse in, in childhood as, uh, you know, sort of the major trauma that can occur. But anyone who've I've, who I've worked with um, who's had that experience, um, you know, it's also accompanied by, um, but I wasn't able to tell anyone about it or, um, you know, I, um, I can't upset my parents, so I think, you know, there's, there's um, you know, any, a, a real importance in the context and that it's the same for a lot of our emergency services um, and, and veterans who are exposed to trauma constantly and often can cope with, um, you know, witnessing all sorts of violence and, and death and um, horrific scenes. Um, but it's not until um, the context around them, whether it be the, you know, the support system or the sense of um, duty um, or purpose or, you know, whatever gives that meaning for them that acts as a sort of container. Um, when that breaks down um, in some way, um, you know, it's sort of like the, the dam wall that's, that's holding all that stuff back. And once that breaks down, then it sort of floods in. Um, so yeah. So, Ella, I might check with you. You had experiences of trauma growing up. Um, what do you feel the impact was had that that had on your mental well-being? Like, what do you feel? Um, I um, so I was sub subjected to abuse from probably about three months old, if not earlier, if you count neglect. Um, so, throughout my whole life, I probably. I believed that there always was an underlying mental illness, um, but I didn't know anything about mental illness to be able to seek help, I suppose. Um, probably <coughs> I do think, like, the context within it, um, the self-blame and not realising that you're a victim but always giving excuses but not being able to tell anybody about it. Um, so I think it was... Even when I was diagnosed with depression, essentially at 19, and then later on, a few years later with anxiety, I still had never spoken about my sexual abuse. It wasn't until there was a lot around the Royal Commission. Um, and then I started talking about that, that I really relapsed and I started to look at trauma um, within regard to being able to talk about it. So I think being able to talk about it and feeling safe to talk about the aspects within it definitely does help in the recovery, so. 
And um, Susan and I were talking beforehand about sometimes the reluctance of clinicians to ask about certain traumas, worried about causing harm. When you actively asked about trauma, have you found that helpful or harmful or what's your experience of talking about I it? was very lucky. Um, I sought out a psychologist um, who specialised in trauma um, and I still see her. But over the years preceding that, when I did seek professional help, it was to treat depression, it was to treat anxiety, it was to treat the symptoms, but no one asked me about my, say, adverse childhood experiences or my history, um, which I really do believe was the root causes of the problem. So I was trying to treat the symptoms. I followed all the advice possible and I kept on getting okay and I kept on getting better. But with PTSD, there's fluctuations in the highs and the lows and you're always going to fluctuate until you understand what it is. Um, and even a big thing is that doesn't address in depression and anxiety is your relationships with others and how you interact, your coping mechanisms that you adopt throughout life, your behaviours that you adopt to try and regulate essentially that stress response system um, and just understanding why I did the things I did. Um, and then I was able to open up and address all the problems. So I was able, instead of being ashamed of drug or alcohol use, I understood why I was using that um, and then I was able to address it and then go on forth from that. So, Zach, I might ask you, if, when we experience a trauma, what is it that our brain, our mind has to do for us to assimilate that without adverse consequences? What is it that we have to actually achieve in our mind? Yeah, th this has been one of the key areas of focus of research for the last 30 years. Um, you know, the neuroscience of PTSD is probably the top three areas of research in the mental health field following schizophrenia and depression at the moment. There's just a great deal of interest in it. And it's been quite a difficult puzzle to unlock because it hasn't been uh, exactly as it was expected. Um, so the first thing, and in a way, a lot of the science that has been created now, which is now quite solid, has also had a bit of an unfortunate effect, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. But a number of quite solid research findings have been identified. So the, the fundamental fear circuitry that underscores PTSD is largely known. It's, you know, the... Um, the amygdala and the hypothalamus are overactivated. Now, these, these areas are also involved in, in depression, anxiety. So one of the big challenges around neuroscience is that what we'd call pathospecificity, but that is starting to emerge now, that there are beginning to be dis distinct parts. So very clear in PTSD is the hyperactivation of the fear threat circuitry. But the other core finding is the hypoactivation or lower activation of the medial prefrontal cortex. So at first, PTSD was thought of as an excitatory disorder, but now most of the models see it as a breakdown in inhibition, the inability to, inhib to inhibit threat-related cues. Because overlaid on this is the memory memory processing. 
So, you know, memory we now know, as in most neuroscience, is modular. Most parts of our systems in our brain are modular. This is why, for example, stroke can remove a person's ability to speak, but they can still sing because our brain is fundamentally modular. And so it is with the neuroscience here. You know, one of the strong, one of the big theories of PTSD is called the dual memory processing theory. So memory appears to be processed in two core parts of the brain. Threat-related memory, which is all the sensory information, is stored in the amygdala and around that fear circuitry. Whereas all the contextual semantic historical information is again called in, uh, recorded in um, the cortex. And what is also believed to happen in PTSD because of the severity of it is that the encoding of the historical information is interrupted, but only the sensory information gets stored. So that gets misfired and mistriggered. And that information there doesn't have a timestamp so that when it's re-experienced as a flashback, it's experienced as an eternal present. And presumably treatments provide that context behind it, which brings back into effect the inhibitory function of the prefrontal cortex. So that's the neuroscience behind PTSD. The other part behind it, which has also started to get very solid find, findings, is the um, endocr endocrinological effects of PTSD. So for a long time, we were looking for elevated cortisol in, um, associated with PTSD, but in fact, it's the opposite. In most people with PTSD, their cortisol levels, their base basal cortisol is reduced. So that took a long time to try to work out, well, that seems pretty counterintuitive because surely you'd be more stress hormones. But what seems to be the case is that it's both hypoactivated and hyperactivated as soon as a stress trigger comes. So it's not there giving a general protective part. So uh, the baseline cortisol is missing and then when it spikes, it just floods the system. So it's dysregulated. And that's now becoming a very strong finding. And there's early research, which is very still preliminary, suggesting that preloading with cortisol might be protective um, because especially if you're consistently engaged in critical incidents, the more you use this system, the more it can go into dysfunction. The cortisol, which should be there, isn't there during a critical incident, which leads you vulnerable to then possibly the inability to encode the memory. That's some of the current theory. Um, we've still got a long way to lock it down. The other part of the neuroscience is the level of dysregulation associated with different categories of trauma. A very big debate is happening at the moment um, you know, there's been a consensus statement that the approach that you should adopt is a phase-based approach. So there's three phases to intervention. Um, the first is stabilisation phase. The second is a trauma-focused um, phase. And the third phase is a kind of an integration phase, these three phases of therapy. And that's been a consensus statement. Now, the hardcore traumatologists have responded and say, well, 
we think by you putting in a stabilization phase, you're stopping people getting to trauma-focused care. So there's a very big debate in the moment. Should you jump in and just do trauma-focused work because there's, you know, the prolonged exposure therapy or eye movement reprocessing or desensitization and reprocessing are evidence-based. If people can tolerate them, they lead to the best changes. Um, and uh, you should get people in there very early and other people say, well, you need to build up a trusting relationship to be able to do that and go in. So this is just currently, you know, there's a, you know, um, a very big debate around this and I suppose science will be the final arbiter. Um, th there is research that shows combining um, these emotional regulation skills and then moving into trauma focus goes very well. But then other people have just used only the trauma-focused intervention without any of that and also in complex trauma and had very good outcomes. Uh, but in, um, Helen Herman says that in that first phase, which you called the stabilisation phase, yeah. it's very important, and this speaks to what you were saying, for the young person to feel safe. Yes. And to establish safety is really important. And the thing we found, I'm doing research in the sexual assault clinic, uh, looking at the mechanisms between exposure to a gender-based violence and the onset of mental disorder. And the one thing that everyone says who had an early exposure to a sexual abuse is the one thing that came before the mental disorder that they associated with the mental disorder was telling someone but not being believed. And so that is the most critical thing uh, that the kids were telling us, or that and young people, women, and even older women who were reflecting back on their first exposure to a gender-based violence was that um, it all happened. I, I started, you know, hallucinating, hearing voices of the abuse or whatever, or I started getting extremely <coughs> depressed after I told someone, my aunt or whatever, she didn't believe me or she told me to go somewhere else. Or, yeah. What do we mean by trauma-focused intervention? Um, so... There's two main um, treatments identified as trauma-focused intervention, and this is separate to trauma-informed care, um, which is something we might want to talk about. The, the, the main evidence-based trauma-focused in interventions are the cognitive prolonged exposure therapy, um, and that would be carried out... Um, or each, episode, each session be for at least 90 minutes and usually a minimum of 12 focused on processing trauma memories. Another intervention that's very well developed is um, eye movement um, desensitization and reprocessing therapy. And collectively these two ha have the strongest ev evidence there's been research looking at can common elements interventions achieve the same kind of outcomes, you know, um, which just bring together a whole lot of like mindfulness-based strategies and relaxation and what we'd call common elements. And certainly you do get a lot of benefits, but you don't get the level of improvement in that. But even under those best interventions, um, the response, the people who are making substantial clinical gains is about two-thirds of people that would receive the treatment. So there's still a lot of room for improvement in our um, 
clinical effectiveness. So I suppose I'd follow on from what you said before that that is different to the trauma-informed care. Yeah, yeah. Yes. so could you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, and you, you might, might want to talk a bit too. Um, so trauma-informed care is a movement, um, and you can look it up on the web, that tries to recognise that um, uh, people affected by trauma will react and process to, th will react to information and things in a different way than if you don't have a traumatic response. And to educate staff and healthcare providers about that, um, to, I suppose it's, tr it's trying to move the health service to one that um, is more validating rather than invalidating, um, uh, is aware that, you know, um, it, it, when you have um, post-traumatic stress disorder, you can't do everything. A lot of your attention is shot. Um, uh, something you've agreed to before you mightn't be able to do, uh, do today because it's a bad day. Just those kinds of things. So an awareness of the effects of trauma. And I suppose it comes from a recognition that a lot of the damage, a lot of the, a lot of the acuity behind PTSD, whether it's going to be a very severe or not response, has to do with the post-traumatic recovery environment. If you create a post-traumatic recovery environment, that um, uh, is highly invalidating and uh, then often symptoms will be much worse. And, not, and I'd just add that it's not necessarily just PTSD as well. There's, there's all sorts of different reactions that um, sort of can result from, from trauma. Um, and so in that, uh, the important thing about trauma-informed care is, is putting trauma in the context um, of, of what someone's presenting with and an awareness of, of trauma uh, as part of that. Um, so you went through the steps earlier about treating trauma. Um, so with my therapist and I, um, we, went, we discussed the emotion regulation. So again, as I said earlier, it was depression originally and then later on it was anxiety and I went through normal just counselling and try, and I addressed everything. I did everything I was asked to do and I kept on relapsing. But when I got with my psychologist, which was in trauma-informed care, um, she helped me understand um, essentially like the stress response system. So there's fight, flight, but then there's also freeze. So when you're a child and you're confronted with something you tend to freeze and a lot of that was self-blame. So, well, I allowed it to happen. I didn't do anything because you always hear about fight or flight, but then you've never heard about this freeze. So it becomes self-blaming. Um, probably the once I was able to notice, say, my body clues, so I was able to notice sensations within my body, um, which is usually the first clues before the narrated memory. Um, I was able to pick up a lot earlier if I was going to fluctuate. Um, mindfulness and grounding was very big for me. Um, that was able to calm me down when I noticed these body clues. Um, and then after that, we went to trauma where I was just learnt more about what it actually was. Um, but again, like triggers as well. 
So, you know, I could be, just an example, you can be walking down a street and you might see someone with a moustache and you won't know why, you won't recognise that you've seen this person with a moustache, but you triggers the stress response system and it'll be a memory that you don't coherently remember, but it will trigger something within you and you can backtrack or you can, you know, get... It, you can go hypo or you can go hypo and you never know which way essentially it's going to go, but just recognising these clues um, and knowing why you're doing the things that you're doing um, was very helpful. So, um, and also for me as well, it was distancing myself and getting stability within my life. So I understand it's very hard, um, you know, to essentially cut unhealthy people out of your life, but having healthy relationships and having supportive people around you is, was a big step for me. Um, and then it is hard, you're like, oh, well, they're family or they're this, they're that. Like, I, you know, if I leave them, you, you go through a range of emotions, but essentially, like, having unhealthy people out of your life, people that don't believe you when you talk about stuff, people that normalise abuse or neglect or, or this person had it worse. Um, and also not talking to everyone about everything that happened in your life. So um, just having boundaries with people really helped because it is... People don't know how to hear about trauma on these certain forms of abuse. They don't know how to cope with it and they don't know the correct responses. So if you learn to have boundaries within people within your life and then have a safe environment, which generally is therapy, um, <coughs> then you have a safe place to talk about it and work through it rather than being essentially re-traumatised by negative reactions. To come back to the phase-based approach, and the research in, in the complex trauma is much um, more difficult to summarise, but the consensus view is that you do need, that treatment is much longer and it really does need to be phased. And, um, and if it's about huge attachment disturbances as childhood-related things are, that a lot of the effective traumatic treatments are the attachment between the therapist and the patient as a bridge to recovery, you know, and, um, but that can be a slow process. The evidence behind that is, is difficult to bring together, but there is evidence to, to support it as effective. There's not evidence to say it's more effective than a very quick focus session of trauma focusing, but you know, those of you who've tried it, it doesn't work well, you know, with that level of complexity. Um, and that phased based approach seems to create a safe, therapeutic, trusting relationship. Can you perhaps comment on what we know about moral injury, um, its relationship with PTSD and on the potential for recovery? So Brett Litz is sort of responsible for a lot of the development of this concept. And a recent study that they did on the treatment that he's developing for moral injury and veterans produced some stats with those people they worked with. They said that, you know, what we think of as the traditional cause or, or sort of traumatising factor in that context as a, a threat to life. For the people that, that were in this study, it was 10% of those people identified that as, as the issue, the primary issue and 45% of them identified moral injury. 
some sort of moral injury, and another 45% identified traumatic loss. And those are the three broad areas that they focus on in that treatment. So in terms of our experience with veterans and, and police officers, as I said earlier, um, you know, often, you know, these, these people are trained to deal with, you know, th a threat of violence or, um, you know, witnessing death or things like that and can cope with those things for a long time. But often it's when some sort of moral injury occurs and we've sort of done a bit of work on developing a model of how moral injury and the more traditional threat, fear, terror um, sort of response sort of both contribute to, to something like PTSD. It's things like, um, you know, Brett Litz tends to focus on transgressions, you know, moral injury coming from acts that, you know, transgress a person's deeply held values. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of research done on the impact of killing uh, that has on a, on a soldier. But often, you know, it's situations where people are just unable, they don't have any other option um, or they've only, they've only sort of got two bad options to choose from. But a, a lot of what we see comes from just being exposed to the aftermath of uh, whether it be accidents or uh, natural disasters or acts of violence. And a big part of that is having some connection with, you know, with a victim, for example. You know, a, one of the most common ones for police, you know, sort of uh, the trauma that they end up sort of developing PTSD from often involves children, particularly at a time when the, um, the child is a similar age to their child or something like that. So something that can sort of get through their normal defences and becomes, has a personal link in some way. And then the other big, big area of moral injury that we see a lot of is, you know, what we call moral betrayal. So this is often systemic in nature when, for example, police officers might, there might be a complaint made about them by the member of the public. And so moral betrayal is, is often occurs when, um, it's most damaging when it occurs at a time when the person is most vulnerable. So often in conjunction with a, a danger or threat situation, or when a person, you know, maybe already full um, from burnout or from, you know, just, just a rough week or something like that. And if some sort of sense of betrayal or just, let, you know, being let down in some way um, occurs, then that's often, can often be the thing that, that, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Can you talk about the risks of vicarious trauma for clinicians working closely with people who have been traumatised? The way I'm coming to see it, uh, the longer I do it, is, um, you know, it, it's a, a type of exposure. And um, one of the things about trauma, for those who experience it or, or, or hear about it, uh, it's, it's knowledge um, and you can't, you can't unknow things. Um, so, um, you know, I, th I think um, 
as with those people in, in situations where they're exposed to trauma, the support is really important. Um, and, um, you know, dosage is important. You know, um, we, we need a break between, you know, trauma-focused sessions and, and traumatised clients and, and things like that. And, um, you know, I know there's been times for me when, when there hasn't been enough of a break and, and I start to feel an impact of it. Um, and, but providing the, um, you know, the support is there um, and, and good enough, then, you know, that, that can be protective. Um, you know, that's a, a vague answer. Yeah, no, um, I think it's a good answer um, because as in other areas of trauma work, if you've got some of those protective things, our ability to be resilient can be quite strong. Um, at, at Richmond Hospital, for example, there anybody involved in trauma, the, the, our trauma program would only be on three days and try to get some breaks, but even then it might be too much. If you take other areas of research, such as working in an immigration detention facility, um, the traumatic impact on mental health staff is quite rapid and quick and um, very severe, partly because the context undermines all of your clinical work. So you're witnessing people experiencing dramatic deterioration and regardless of what therapeutic paradigm you have, you're going to be ineffectual uh, when, if there's a systemic process that's deteriorating people. And that is very corrosive. So, you know, um, um, work-related injuries for mental health staff and security staff are enormously high in settings. So that tells us a lot about the importance of trauma-informed care because, you know, trauma-informed care is about trying to create safe workplaces I hope, um, and if we're starting to get vicarious traumatisation, it actually suggests that we're failing to create a former trauma-informed workplace, that either it's too relentless or it's not having enough breaks, and if we're getting some of those signs, you, you know, need to review the context or the amount or the load or the intensity. I have a quick question. Uh, sorry. Uh, so for Alana, I was just wondering how, uh, I guess I'm interested in how you found the right help eventually and whether that was, I guess, just whether it was luck or whether you went through, yeah. Um, I think I used Google. <laughs> but um, I think there was a psychologist um, website where a lot of them are listed. Um, and then when you go through, they have a brief little bio about what they specialise in. Um, so I went there and I was trying to look at something that I could link to my childhood. Um, and I rung up quite a few, spoke to them, um, and just who I felt most comfortable with, I ended up getting an appointment. Um, I was living rurally in Griffith. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't any trauma-informed care there, so I had a psychologist in Sydney. Um, so we did over the phone or we did Skype um, for probably about 18 months until I've moved to Newcastle. Um, I travel up and see her in person, um, but we do try and do Skype because 
looking at me and seeing, you know, facial expressions, tones in voices and things can help her pick up on something that I may have missed. But essentially it was just online and just ringing around and just seeing who I felt comfortable with and when I like what I liked about their responses because um, as I said with my previous diagnoses I went through quite a lot of counsellors and I just never seemed to mesh with them very well um, didn't feel comfortable um, so yeah I after all the years I eventually just knuckled down I was like no I've got to find someone and I wasn't going to give up that time do you think supporting the provision of trauma-informed care in countries where there is violence and conflict would have an impact on the movement of refugees around the world? It's an interesting point that you make. If, if in the country of origin there's sufficient services to respond adequately to trauma, and of course there in many countries that's not the case, but I suppose there's one thing is, first of all, you have to have a resolution of the conflict or the, the, the problem. Um, otherwise, people will leave because they want to find safety somewhere else. So, yes, in our unit, Zach and, and Professor Derek Silov have set up mental health services in countries affected by conflict. And, um, and we've done a lot of research in, in countries that are affected by conflict. And there are, you know, it is very important that local people are trained to respond to conflict, that these services are feasible, you know, they're affordable and that they're appropriate and that you don't have people just flying in and trying to help out and leaving, that, you know, you have an established service. And I don't think, I think it's a tragedy that the Australian government's cut aid to countries that really require good services, mental health services and other services that can respond to support people who've effect, been affected by trauma. Um, I um, think that the service responses in Australia are very good, you know, the, the torture and trauma services and things like that. But um, I think I, <laughs> I just couldn't believe actually that we still have, you know, people in senior positions saying things about people who've been traumatised in the most derisive way and that we have a country that's still critical or, you know, and, you know, questioning of people's motives for finding safety and security when we know how devastating these wars are for people and trauma and, and you just want to find safety and, and live a better life. That raises a really important issue that goes across the board because our ability to get evidence-based practice in this area is really fraught. Um, the, the recovery environment is critical to determining outcomes for trauma survivors. In the, in the post-conflict field, Australia has the best offshore settlement services probably in the world. Um, we resettle between 14 and 20,000 refugees and simultaneously having the worst uh, ad, you know, um, deterrence uh, program globally, you know, our immigration detention facility. There's, there's currently one million people held in immigration detention facilities globally, 500,000 in the US. Um, but the Australian detention facilities, are, you know, have the longest periods of stay, have the most research done on them because of a very active research group. And, 
you know, over 25 studies have just show complete deteriorations in people's mental health in this. And, you know, even if you're, you know, you do believe, and I don't necessarily not believe in the need for um, border management and control, it's an ineffective strategy, you know. Immigration detention doesn't do anything but damage people that it's affected to. So, you know, we create these systems that engender additional injury. So across a lot of our structural responses to trauma survivors, we've created an invalidating recovery environment which engenders very poor outcomes. And so, you know, how do you get good policy in, in place? So if we contrast Australia with New Zealand, which has a no-fault no care system for anybody who has an injury, um, and you don't have to prove that your injury occurred in the occupational setting, you get much better outcomes. And yet we're stuck in these highly adversive, the highly iatrogenic systems. Now, it, you see it applied to the refugees in a very dramatic way, but in fact, it's systematically being applied to a whole cohort of trauma survivors leading to very poor outcomes. So, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate, you know, the uh, achievements of veterans, we'll celebrate you know, the work of police, and yet we create an entitlement system that makes them very unwell. So there's a lot of room for effective advocacy in this space. There was controversy around this idea that, you know, if there's a bushfire or there's a disaster that we fly in all the councillors and they straight away treat everybody and prevent trauma-related consequences. What's the evidence around that? What do we know about the usefulness or not of that? So... Um, I mean, this is one of the, I suppose, great stories of science in a way, because um, in most areas of mental health, early intervention is extremely important. If you know, if we know with first episode psychosis, the earlier you get in, you manage to stop people deteriorating in other areas. Well, it turns out that that isn't very good um, for um, catastrophic trauma. I mean, that's partly because of well, I'll talk about the mechanism, but the way we discovered it was the rollout of critical stress, um, critical incident stress debriefing. It was targeted at people that were needful. It was targeted a whole population that had been exposed to some kind of natural disaster. And after a series of trials and studies of this, it found that whenever it was rolled out, the prevalence of PTSD would increase rather than decrease. Now, the theory behind why that's happening is that the PTSD response is quite normative and in the months following it, um, if you get in there and start to worry people about their symptoms, they'll become entrenched. Most of that will just subside and the best thing is to focus on practical interventions. Now, it's my understanding that um, with the uh, Black Saturday was um, uh, where there was a... a, a coordinated psychological response, that was all held back. Um, so that, of course, it was available for people that wanted it, but it certainly wasn't rolled out universally. And in about a month, there was a screening of the population to see if people were still symptomatic and more targeted interventions, which seems to be the way to go. There's been some research that even a pamphlet about PTSD can cause more PTSD in that critical period. And it sort of suggests that the normal you know, all of the services have a kind of a stoical attitude to trauma. You, you, you know, they suck it up and you push on. 
And that seems to be very effective until it's not. Um, and it's an important strategy that shouldn't be undermined because it does build resilience, but it, but it, it, will, it, it will fail for some people at some times and then other strategies are needed. But moving in and interfering with that stoical response to trauma leads to adverse outcomes. Can you take us through the signs and symptoms to look for in a clinician who's perhaps suffering from vicarious trauma? I guess um, it, it, this isn't something that's, that's clearly defined. There's different versions of what vicarious trauma is. Um, and I think there's, there's also a big overlap with burnout. Um, so, you know, obvi obviously the, the usual signs of, of any sort of um, distress or struggle, um, you know, reduced functioning, reduced activity, withdrawal, signs of stress, um, impact on sleep, um, eating, relationships, um, you know, all, all of the usual signs, I think. Um, I guess that, that, that's the version that's easier to pick. I think um, there's another version, um, you know, which may be related to that sort of stoicism where, um, you know, effectiveness or dedication actually increases. Um, so people just um, start working harder um, and, and um, you know, perhaps uh, function really well in the work while they're doing the work, but everything else around it is falling apart. Um, so that, you know, and that, as a that would be a harder version. I think version it can go one of to two pick. ways too an over identification, you know, uh, um, uh, an increased sense of needing to rescue and save the person you're working with. Or alternatively, you know, it can go the other way, uh, kind of um, starting to be aware of, you know, well, starting to have stigmatised attitudes to the population you're working with, you know, there, there'd be also some symptoms that it's been getting its toll on you. Okay, well, we might leave it there. Please thank our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, Subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.